1: Greetings, Skywatchers. This is Ryan Sprague, the host of the Summer in the Skies podcast, and I want you to join me at AlienCon. AlienCon lands in Baltimore, Maryland on November 9th, 10th, and 11th. Explore the unexplained with your favorite ancient aliens contributors, UFO researchers, and stars from hit sci-fi and sci-fact television shows and films. I'll personally be giving my solo presentation and I'll also be joining my good friend and colleague Jason McClellan of Rogue Planet to moderate and take part in panel discussions throughout the weekend. It's going to be a fun and informative weekend for families, serious researchers, and all curious minds alike. And right now, you can get an exclusive Somewhere in the Skies discount on all tickets by visiting thealiencon.com. Slash register and using the code SKIES at checkout. We hope to see you at the Baltimore Convention Center in November. And now on to the show. Today on the show, we talk to investigative filmmaker Josh Zeman about the terrifying truth behind urban legends.
2: You know, it's funny, a lot of people get upset about the film because they think it's gonna be a dissection of the ecropsey urban legend. And and it's not. It, it, it's my crossey. It's about my urban legend, and 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 this urban legend come true in my town, and and that that really upsets them because they, they they want to know about their urban legend, and and that's but that's the point. And it's very hard. It's 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 hard to put such a fine point on that point. Urban legends are amorphous. They're changing. They go from community to community. Your clown urban legend is different from my clown urban legend, and so. It's not even like we can nail down these urban legends.
0: This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Spread.
1: Welcome to the final installment of the Halloween series of Somewhere in the Skies. I'm your host, Ryan Sprague. With Halloween just around the creaky corner, we wrap things up this week with one more listener ghost story. Have a listen.
0: My story takes place in 2008 in my hometown near Cleveland, Ohio, and has a few parts to it. I was playing drums in a band with my friends, and we were starting to gain momentum around town. So a local management company scouted us. Um, we signed with them and the guy who became our point person or manager was a guy named Bruce. He was 35, 36, he was married, had a three-year-old son, was just a great easygoing guy to be around. Uh, so we all became really close with him and he sort of became like a fourth member of the band. So Bruce and I hung out a lot outside of music And one day we were sitting around at lunch and I had just gotten a new phone. This was around the time where cell phones were getting fancier and came with these little preloaded animated pictures that you could set as someone's icon when they called you. So we flipped through and decided to make him the rainbow. So he called me probably 15 times a day sometimes. He was always the first person I talked to in the morning and the last one I talked to at night. So I saw that rainbow a lot. We played a show on Friday night and we stayed late. We closed down the bar and then we all went home. A little while later, I got a call from a distraught family member of his saying, Was he acting weird? Did he take something that you know of? He was smoking a cigarette in the garage and then just dropped. I called the band. We all met at the hospital where we found out that Bruce had passed very suddenly from a massive heart attack. We were all in shock, so we just went to our bass player's house and sat outside until the sun came up. I went home, went to sleep, and when I woke up, I melted down super hard. We were all in our early 20s at this time, um, and this definitely was the first loss of this kind that I had ever dealt with. Um, And I was particularly close with Bruce. I was going through a rough time, and he just helped me out with stuff, and was good to talk to, and a good listener, and we were just really close. I was close with his family. So I looked down at my phone and had the realization that he was really gone. And I thought, man, I'm never gonna see that stupid rainbow again. And just then, my phone rang. And it was the rainbow. Bruce cell. And only rang one time and then stopped. I thought it was strange, but I shook it off and figured maybe his wife called me with his cell phone. Then his wife did call me about a half hour later with her phone. So I asked, Did you just call me a little bit ago with his phone? She goes, No. If he called you, that makes sense, because listen to what just happened to me. She had gotten home the night before and put his phone, keys, and wallet on the kitchen table. She also had the coroner's card she said she put on top of a stack of business cards, dreading the reality that she had to call and deal with all this the next day. Now there was a table in the doorway that Bruce always set his stuff on when he came home, but she put everything on the kitchen table. So she wakes up, goes in the kitchen, his phone, his keys, and his wallet were moved from the kitchen table to the doorway table, and the coroner's card was now under the whole stack of business cards super weird part two i've always had this thing about locking my car i never remember if i did it or not um i've left events to make sure that i locked my car bruce made fun of me for it all the time so later that day i was visiting my grandma and i thought oh did i lock my car i walked out my driver's side door was wide open and all i could say was okay good one so i just laughed um i just knew it was him after that, and this is all the same day, mind you, the day after he passed. Um, after that I was taking a walk in the woods with my sister. I got another phone call from Bruce's wife, and she goes, Has he been opening and he's been opening and slamming doors in, in our house all day? Have you had anything else weird happen? I thought, Well, yes I have. So I told her about it. Bruce and I always talked about ghosts and the paranormal and spiritual things and just all that stuff. So this was no surprise that he would figure out a way to mess with everyone. Our bass player had something happen to him. I believe he received a text message from Bruce's phone uh, that we all saw. And our singer also had a weird thing happen where we were all sitting there and he all of a sudden just dropped his phone on the ground and backed up, like terrified. We were all just like, what happened? Are you okay? He goes, no, I just straight up saw my phone screen image change to Bruce's face and then back. And at this time he was kind of feeling left out that nothing had happened to him yet. Um, so Bruce got him good. So part three, we decided we were going to play our show that night and give our earnings to his family to help with funeral costs, um, and all of that stuff that they had to go through. Uh, he would have wanted us to play. He was our biggest fan, our biggest supporter. So we knew he would be there, so to speak. During our break, I called his wife to see how she was doing. And she said she was okay. She was with his whole family. She said, one more weird thing happened though earlier. And she proceeded to tell me that they were all sitting around, and their three-year-old son was in the middle of the floor just staring up at the ceiling and pointing. So they asked him, what, what do you see? And he just kept repeating, Daddy happy, daddy happy. Um, this is right around the time where we would have been starting the show. So that always stuck with me, um, and that was just really strange. Um, but, you know, kids are kids see things that we don't see. Um, So the last part, after his funeral, I drove to the lake because it was one of our favorite places to hang out and have deep conversations. So I get on the highway, um, which was kind of a panoramic view uh, of everything. You get on the ramp and, and go down. And what's the first thing I see bright and big in the sky, but a rainbow? So I still feel Bruce around sometimes. Um, A lot of time has passed, obviously. But for the most part, I think he's crossed over to wherever he needed to be. Um, I mostly feel him when I'm back home visiting and get to play music with my buddy Nick, who was the front man of that band. Um, Yeah, so that's my story. Happy Halloween, everyone. I'm off for my tradition of uh, watching Donnie Darko. So Ryan, when you're in San Diego, please hit me up. You know where to find me. Happy Halloween, everyone.
1: And now, on to this week's guest. When I was a freshman in college, I remember hearing from an older student that our campus library was slowly sinking into the ground. Apparently, the architect who designed and helped actually build the library didn't take into account the weight of the books that would fill the shelves. So, I would walk by the library every day on my way to class, and I'd take a look convincing myself that it has sunk just a tiny bit each day. I went on thinking this my entire collegiate career. A few years later, I mentioned this to a friend at a bar in New York City, and as I told it, he laughed. I figured it was because of how stupid the architect was. But no, he was laughing because he'd been told the same thing about the library at his college as well. In fact... We asked several others at the bar, including the bartender, and at least three other people claimed that their libraries at their schools were sinking slowly into the ground. And this was the first time I'd ever truly fell victim to an urban legend. But it was a moment I would never forget. That feeling that my college, my connection to this story, was special. But it wasn't. And that is the power Of the urban legend. For today's guest, an urban legend in his hometown of Staten Island, New York, haunted his nightmares for many years as a child. If you stayed out too late or snuck into the woods of this New York City borough, Cropsey, a crazed killer, would snatch you up and you'd meet your doom. And while this creepy story sometimes kept children tucked snugly and safely at home, It made others venture out to search for Cropsey. And one of those children was Josh Zeman. And as he grew up, he realized that the urban legend eerily mirrored a tragic string of events that plagued Staten Island. Someone was actually kidnapping and killing children in the town. As the suspects narrowed, Josh made a terrifying connection and conclusion between the actual murders and the urban legend he'd grown up hearing. This led him to investigate other urban legends throughout the U.S., including the man with the hook for a hand, the stranger in the house, killing children with Halloween candy, and even the creepy clown phenomenon. Where did the legend begin and reality end? Which came first? Is fact more terrifying than fiction? We discuss this and so much more right now with investigative filmmaker Josh Zeman. So I came across your work one day when uh, when I tripped upon your first documentary, Cropsey, on Netflix. And I thought, this sounds pretty interesting. I'd never really seen someone investigate urban legends before. And right off the bat, I was, I was completely consumed by this story and s- sort of just manifested into your hometown and then became... All too real. So I guess for those who may not be familiar with your work, could you sort of give us a little origin story of how Cropsey came to be?
2: Yeah, I was uh, growing up in Staten Island in the 1980s. There was always these urban legends about the escaped mental patient who lived in what was called the Willowbrook Mental Institution, which was this kind of notorious snake pit mental institution, which was abandoned in the middle of our uh, forgotten borough of Staten Island. And, you know, we were – as teenagers, you always go keg parties, do whatever, hang out and, you know, there was this urban legend about Cropsey, this escaped mental patient and and how he would come and snatch you if you went and hung out there and we really didn't think anything about it until – Uh, A little girl with Down syndrome disappeared from the neighborhood and after one of the largest civilian manhunts in New York City history, they found her body buried on the grounds of that same mental institution. Uh, The police arrested a guy. He wasn't an escaped mental patient. He was a worker. Uh, who had worked in the mental institution and had worked and lived in a campsite on the grounds. And then the police revealed that he had been suspected of taking five other missing kids over the course of 30 years. And so in a lot of ways, the urban legend came true. And then it becomes a chicken or the egg thing was, did the police really know that this guy was doing these, snatching these children? They didn't have enough evidence to catch him. And so they instead told their children an urban legend story to keep them from going in that area to keep, to prevent them from being snatched or is there always urban legends about mental institutions? And what's very interesting is, is, you know, it, it's funny. A lot of people get upset about the film because they think it's going to be a dissection of the acropsy urban legend. And, and it, it's not, it, it, it's, it's the, about my cropsey, it's about my urban legend, and 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 this urban legend come true in my town, and and that that really upsets them because they they, they want to know about their that, their urban legend, and and that's but that's the point, mm-hmm. and it's very hard, it's 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 hard to put such a fine point. On that point, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. It, it, urban legends are amorphous; they're changing. They go from community to community. Your clown urban legend is different from my clown urban legend, you know. And so, it's not even like we can nail down these urban legends mm-hmm. like we can today. We almost know exactly where Slender Man came from, right. uh, Creepy Pasta. But you know, Cropsey, Cropsey is so many things to so many different people. To me, he was. A campground story, he was, you know, the, the the escape mental patient. For some, that is, you know, Michael Myers, the escape mental patient. For some, it's something else, you know. Yeah. Every, every town has these urban legends and, you know, if you really want to get into it, Cropsey was – he was typically a judge or some character of, of high moral value in a community that it, it gets recently married and a bunch of campers burn down his cabin. And end up killing his wife and sometimes his child. He's horribly maimed, and then he gets an axe and then comes after the kids. And and, th- and that's that's basically the origins of the of the Cropsey urban legend from uh, sleepaway camps in upstate New York in the 1950s. And what's so interesting is uh, one of the guys who went to those camps was um, was uh, Harvey Weinstein. Oh and, wow! And so they from that they made the burning about Cropsey, which was basically the urban legend that they had at their sleepaway camp in upstate New York.
1: Right, right. That's that's very interesting, the uh, the origins of it and Holly, how Hollywood can be connected. I know I've heard you talk about another connection within Hollywood with your own work
2: on mm-hmm. Cropsey, is that correct? Uh, you're talking about Ryan Murphy? He took Cropsey and... Uh, made it the um, end of uh, American Horror Story 2.
1: Okay, gotcha, gotcha.
2: And, uh, and uh, you know, it's interesting because he, he, like, he's very, I guess, imitation is the most sincere form of flattery, but he uh, he ended up very, being very public, like, oh, yeah, we took it from this documentary, Cropsy and I'm like, hey, <laughs> dude, pay me. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but, but the interesting thing is, is that, you know, it's a documentary, so technically you can't, there's no copyright infringement on a documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, had anybody ever taken that Geraldo footage before and cast that story, reframed what was a social justice story for Geraldo Rivera back in the 1970s and reframed it as a horror story. And, and that's what I brought to the table. And that's what I took umbrage with in terms of what he then used. But And,
1: and, and I mean, you do touch very closely on societal issues within Cropsey and your, your follow-up to Cropsey as well. Um, I kind of want to tap into that, Josh, about Staten Island itself. Like you said earlier, it's sort of the forgotten borough of yeah. New York City, um, a dumping ground of sorts, in that it's an underbelly of where you grew up, and it played such a big role throughout the film. Um, could you tell us a little what you were trying to sort of convey with Staten Island being almost like its own character in the narrative?
2: First of all, as I, like, when I used to teach and tell kids, like, write what you know. You know what I'm saying, and so immediately you're going to write. You're going to there's so many stories, and so many first-time filmmaker stories are about their hometown,
1: Mm -hmm. right?
2: And so um, that was important. And I and and I guess you know it was just this fascinating history to this this forgotten borough, and you know one with an obvious chip on its shoulder. And more and more, I dug into this story. The more and more I realized it played into the people. Because, you know, it starts first with the people. Mm -hmm. Why would people believe the story? Why would people bite so hard into the satanic narrative, you know? And it was like, well, one interesting thing we found out was a lot of people, when the Verrazano Bridge was built in the 1970s, a lot of people came over from Brooklyn, right? They suddenly had a house. They had a yard. They had this great place. Because before, when you grew up in the city and there was like, a piece of woods or abandoned place. That was like a lot. You know, that was like a lot that nobody went to. And and only bad things happen in those lots. You got beat up if you used it as a, as a walkway to school. People got dragged and raped there. Maybe you would find a body there. Maybe there would be abandoned cars. People would go shoot up there. So when you live in an urban community, abandoned areas or, or pieces of patches of greenery and stuff, only bad things happen there. And then all these people moved to Staten Island. And then they were like, oh, look, there's this whole, it's called the Greenbelt. There's this whole like forests, you know, and, and, and people were – they were apprehensive about these big, large forests, you know, especially when you're in the city. City folk, you know, the city folk <laughs> are always nervous about the forest, you know. And, and so they were always nervous about it and then suddenly when they peered through the branches, they found in the middle this abandoned Mental institution. In fact, they and it wasn't just that. It was an abandoned. It was Sea View, an abandoned sanitarium. There were all these abandoned buildings, and you know that's scary. But then, oh my God, you know they're finding dead bodies in this abandoned thing. So it was very much, you know, about how people reacted, and, and it's very much about urban politics. But you know, it was it was it was very much about Staten Island as this forgotten borough and this dumping ground. I mean, how could you not? when your hometown is known for having the largest garbage dump in the world.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, and I'm saying like, it's gonna, everything you do is going to be tainted by the fact that you live in the largest garbage dump in the world. Right, you know? right. And it's all about, like you
1: said, it's all about perception. And, I mean, in terms of Willowbrook and the disappearances, like you mentioned sort of in the synopsis of Cropsey, um, you decided to focus on this guy, Andre Rand. Um, mm-hmm. Could you tell us a little... About how that came to be, and sort of what the dichotomy was between what the community considered true and what yeah. the actual trial of this Andre Rand guy, what it brought forth.
2: That's, that's a great question. Originally, I was my I wanted to make Paradise Lost. Mm-hmm. You know, the documentary by yeah. Joe Berlinger. and and to me that was the the moment I saw that opening sequence with Metallica Sanitarium. I was. I was in a hook, line and sinker. This yeah. was, this was the teenage angst that I was feeling. This was the, um, journalistic integrity of a documentary filmmaker. But this also had the myst- the mystery of, you know, Damien Eccles and the story and everything that went down a real whodunit. And so I was trying to make that movie basically emulate that film as, as a young filmmaker. But interestingly enough, you know, in New York, you can't have cameras in the courtroom. So. I was screwed. I was like what am I going to how am I going to tell this story? I can't have a camera in the courtroom. How, how am I going to tell this courtroom drama? And so we decided to and, and this was a, this was a trial that came about in the 90s for a crime that happened 20 years earlier, right? Oh, so that. that 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 brings something up. You know, there's a lot of like false memory and there's a lot of like I remember when and what that means, you mm-hmm. know? And so And so we decided, because we couldn't get in there, we decided to go out into the community and basically talk to the people and hear their stories. And what we realized was the fiction of the case was so much more interesting than the facts. Mm -hmm. The facts can be manipulated. The facts can be argued. The facts can be construed. But the fiction is created. And so all these stories about this supposed guy, Andre Rand, the facts about him weren't as interesting. What was interesting is how the community created their monster in him, how they scapegoated him, he may or may not have done it. I I think he did some things. I don't know if he did everything that they they said he did. But, you know, he became their boogeyman. And the question is, why do communities create monsters? Mm -hmm. Why did they create scapegoats? And especially crimes against children. Crimes against children are the worst crime because they're so incomprehensible to you and I. You know, I, I think we can all... At some point in our lives, get behind killing the guy because he stole our parking space. Like you've been that angry, you know what I'm saying, or the or the person that insulted you, or, or you know belittled you, or something like that. We can all get behind that. But for somebody who murders a child, there is no logical conclusion, and that's one of our biggest fears, you know. And so I, I we we have to say that that's not human. We have to assign a, a different motivation, and that and typically the only way we can contextualize and understand that is to say that. It's good versus evil and even more so in this case, that was only heightened when you – when in – at least in Jennifer's case, he killed a child with Down syndrome because Down syndrome children supposedly – the legend goes is they have no ill will thought at all and so you're killing pure innocence and so that's almost even more cinematic per se. And so uh, the community just created all these legends about what happened. I mean – you can imagine a community going in and searching for a missing child and, again, finding Willowbrook, finding tunnels underneath Willowbrook in the midst of Geraldo Rivera um, doing his whole satanic panic thing. Yeah. You know, it was just like the perfect storm of how to freak out a community.
1: It, well, yeah. Like you said, it's almost a way of piecing things together that may not be connected to begin with. Um, right but that's how you create the legend that's how you create the story
2: right because there has to be some reason right i mean yeah they, we
1: have to give it reason
2: yeah there can't be like so like oh well you know and, and and again the set pieces are all there like the movie was there for these these people were living a movie the, mm-hmm. and that was all there there's you have the abandoned mental institution you have satanic panic you have missing children you have drooling guys like andre ran you have mental patients who are still returning to the community and kind of hanging out there Mm -hmm. um you've got tunnels you've got cops i mean it's it's again it was all it was all there for the for the connecting you know and and that's exactly what happened and so and then so juxtaposing that versus the reality of the trial was just so interesting and none of it mattered Uh, you know if you watch the film and you listen they were all the people were all coached in the same way too they all say oh i had to do what i had to do you know yeah some people who testified against him oh he sound he looked crazy he sounded crazy and then the the other question is is another reason why people create narratives is through guilt and i think that there was some guilt about what happened at willowbrook
1: absolutely throughout the entire town i would assume
2: you know and it's like oh how could we let all this happen here so when i what i learned from the urban legends experts is like people like to create scapegoats to, to cathartically exercise their own guilt, and uh, in Staten Island that with status anxiety moving from Brooklyn, you know lower middle class to now middle class it was it was all these interesting things
1: yeah, and I, I mean you 've mentioned on occasion that we sometimes these acts of violence and murder they occur and they 're so unbelievable, so incomprehensible that we have to create. A story around it. We have to create some sort of reality to propel that unbelievable act of aggression. Um, mm-hmm. And I find that very interesting. I mean, one of the most, uh, I- I'd say, chilling moments in the film came when you interviewed one of Rand's past acquaintances. And he mm-hmm. said, you could hold up a photo of this guy, and he could either be, quote, unquote, a murderer or, quote, unquote, he could have saved children from a burning building. And it's really a huge game of perception, stories, opinions. And I guess my next question would be, in terms of Cropsey, like how did you try to differentiate and paint a true picture of Rand?
2: Well, I guess to do that is to try and understand his history. The, mm-hmm. the the best way to paint the truest pictures is to understand the motivations, right? Yeah. And so uh, speaking to his family, trying to understand uh, his his family, and that was what opened up a lot of doors of understanding. Like when we went back and we said, you know, well, who is this guy? Because, mm-hmm. you know, people don't just, you know, pop in to the world as drifters living in the woods. You know what I'm saying? So, and I think that that's the, that's the narrative that everybody else got drifter, yeah. drifter, 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 you know? And so we're like, okay, so who is this guy? And then when you realize, well, his mother was in a mental institution at Pilgrim state, which is exact, very much the same type of mental institution, the same physical layout, especially in his formative years that he would go visit her in Pilgrim State, you start to understand the motivations, like why he would want to be at Willowbrook, you know, it was it was comfortable for him. Maybe it was a way for him it was a way for him to reconcile his own family's issues. And then it starts to create a much more complex picture, one that I find so much more interesting, but one that breaks out of the simple narrative. Yeah. That, that that the community is created. Then he's no longer just an evil boogeyman or he's not a devil worshiper. Then he's then he's a guy with mental disabilities or, or some kind of, you know, uh, his own mental schizophrenia or what have you. You know, it becomes a much more complex picture, one in which, by the way, uh, how we deal with the mentally ill becomes even more important. And people don't like, you know, they don't like really, really complex puzzles because it's too hard to figure out and there's it's not a clear enough end.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We have to put a face to it always. Um, yeah. I, I guess, you know, sort of closing in on Cropsy. Josh, have there been any updates on the Rand case? Or have you noticed, I don't want to focus too much on him because that's mm-hmm. not necessarily what the film is about, but have you mm-hmm. noticed the urban legend changing at all since he's been imprisoned?
2: The interesting thing was, is that, Nobody had talked about – when we were young, we all talked about this guy, Rand, and did he ever take those kids? Mm -hmm. And We all talked about Cropsey, the urban legend. We had never kind of tied it together in the way that we had and never then represented that. So I think what happened was we took two different chapters and we tied them into one and so we created the next chapter. And What's so important – what's so interesting is I've been back to Willowbrook um, or or the area – and talk to the kids, and now the new kids have know about Cropsey. Like, it, it's just amazing to me that Cropsey has now become such a pervasive urban legend in Staten Island and New York. It's everywhere, you know. Yeah. And so much so that, like, last year there was a haunted house about urban legends of New York City, and Cropsey was one of the characters. Oh wow! And uh, it makes me laugh only because, like, this was never, you know, it's just it's almost like slenderman
0: yeah you know
2: if you hit it at the right time you know with the right story and the right amount of truth you know it's going to it's going to take you know and and that's what makes urban legends go just the right amount of truth the right amount of realness the right you know mental you know institutions you know all the all those little factors that totally work and it'll go and so it's just amazing to me how that urban legend has evolved and then becomes so pervasive in staten island and you now see how they happen and i wonder what the next iteration is going to be you
0: know
1: right. it's so cyclical you're right yeah and then it keeps growing festering in a way <laughs> well josh it seemed that cropsy was kind of a precursor to really getting your thematic point across in your next project uh, where the idea of urban legends spread from your hometown to all across the country and this came in the form of Killer Legends. Uh, how did this project come about? How did you uh, get hooked up with Chiller TV on that?
2: <laughs> it's funny. You know, a lot of people are like, they we put it out as like a movie on Netflix, but a lot of people are like, this doesn't feel like a movie, you know, <laughs> and, and, because it's not. It was a TV show. Right. Uh, that, it's a pilot that never went. Uh, and, you know, Chiller, Chiller I. They said, oh, yeah, we'll make it into a show and then – it was funny. We pitched all these reality TV executives around the time of the ghost hunting shows and we, say, we said, listen, this is not ghost hunting, OK? Yeah. And we're looking at urban legends and they everybody was like, wait a second. If you're not looking for ghosts, what are you looking for? They couldn't get that people were interested in – mythology and urban legends and 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 the connections they, they just couldn't wrap their heads around what that, that looked like and, and why people were interested and now with your podcast with lore with all these things it's so obvious you know mm-hmm. what i'm saying it's like we love to understand uh, how these stories take a life of its own how they're so active mm-hmm. in 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 the, the the idea of storytelling like that To me, that's so amazing. You know, very much like, you know, it's like I've never seen something like spread like wildfire and take on this game of telephone. Like I love understanding how we communicate. And so Chiller was one of the only channels that uh, they just wanted some content on there. So they're like, (laughs) sure, go ahead. Do whatever you want to do. And so we did these four urban legends that, you know, everybody had talked about and everybody knew. And uh, we put it together and and I wish it could have been much more more interesting. But, you know, we we only had like 20 minutes per and um, and but it was still fun to do, you know, only because when we talked about crops, everybody was like, oh, I have an urban legend that I want. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ want to discuss and so i really liked showing everybody like hey hollywood keeps regurgitating these same old urban legends and let's see where they really come from you know
1: well let's sort of go into those if you're cool with that yeah. the first one you cover is lovers laying in the hook and give us could you give us a little backstory on the urban legend and what brought you to texarkana texas
2: sure it, it this is really interesting you know it is it it is the most famous urban legend of the 1950s and 60s you know a couple making out on a car in Lover's Lane the radio is on he, they're getting really hot and heavy and all of a sudden you know a newscast comes over the radio that there's an escaped mental patient uh, roaming the countryside he has a hook for a hand and the girl quitus interruptus wants to go home the guy's all pissed because he's not going to get laid he jams on the, the the gas pulls the car out of Lover's Lane gets home opens up the car door for the girl you know to let her out to go inside her home and, and suddenly he sees the hook is on the car door you know <laughs> is attached to the car door and basically uh if she hadn't like stopped having sex and and wanted to go home they would have been killed by the the one arm the, the hook for a hand guy you know and uh it's so funny because the urban legend is completely about sex, basically. It's like right. the teenage, anti teenage sex thing. And and it's amazing to me how um, graphic it gets in terms of like some, there's like penetration, like the hook would have penetrated the car if they had gone further in their own sexual act and mm. stuff like that. But, you, you know, we all know that for urban legends to to really grow, there has to be some truth. Basically, if you want to put forth a cautionary tale about teenage sex, you can't just make up some story. What you have to do is you have to find a real story that exists that that there's no quite answer to and then attach your cautionary tale to that. So that's what the parents would do. So the parents would find some other you know, unexplained solved mystery crime and say, "Hey, you know what happened to, to Billy Joe, you know, Sarah Joe down the street, that's going to happen to you just like" you know the moonlight murders if you guys go out there and have premarital sex. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in the 1950s there was there was this these crimes, you know, the moonlight murders in Texarkana, Texas where some guy would go happen upon, you know, couples making out in their cars and he would shoot them. Now, the interesting thing is it's, it's like, yeah, you know, no shit. That is exactly what's going to happen. Like, where do you think most killers are going to find their unsuspecting victims, especially victims who are so in states of undress and therefore easily controlled? Mm-hmm. You, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, it, of course, it makes sense that killers are going to go to lover's lanes areas. There's typically some sexual component to it, you know, so they're gonna love to, they love that part about it and the guy's got his pants around his ankles so of course he's gonna be listening you know, he's not gonna be hyper aware and so it just makes complete sense that that would happen but there's numerous people who say it it, it could have been the hook for a hand came from the Texarkana Texas murders. Uh, they say it could have come from also the Carol Chessman murders, the Red Light murders that we don't really get into that happened in California. So there's a lot of different iterations of that urban legend and where it came from. But for me, it was you know the unsolved uh, Texarkana Texas murders was interesting. And then on top of it, as we're filming it, we find out that Ryan Murphy is doing uh, <laughs> is doing uh, the you know the remake of of the film the town that dreaded sundown so it was like okay this is just hysterical
1: yeah well let's definitely touch on that i mean that yeah. was probably the biggest <laughs> twist um i mean you left the what was it the parks and rec director in Texarkana like speechless <laughs> um <laughs> uh, like, like you it's, said
2: yeah you discovered the idea i yeah. love the idea that so basically the idea is that they show This 1970s movie, The Town That Dreaded Sundown, which which, by the way, was one of the first Blair Witch style movies, Mm -hmm. a movie which was a docudrama, which was basically fictionally filmed. But, you know, there was voiceover to make it to make it seem like it was real and happening. And, And that director did the same thing with The Legend of Boggy Creek, which is a totally scary movie. So that was one of the that was one of the first like again stuff, this kind of almost docudrama drama horror film, and the Legend of Baki Creek was a huge huge money maker. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was that was that was the Blair Witch of its time. And so while we're <laughs> so they show this movie about the murders in the actual park where the murders happened every October. As part of some, you know, film series. So basically that is legend tripping. Basically what they're doing is they're bringing everybody to the scene of the crime and then through the movie telling them about what happened here. And and that is that is what folklorists call legend tripping, where you like go to the haunted house in your neighborhood, and some guy's like, yeah, you know what happened right here, right here, five people were killed. You know, so you go there as teenagers and you kind of test your own strength, you know, you test your own courage, or you go there with a girl and you know you try and quote unquote scare the pants off her, <laughs> um, you know. So it's all part of, of this kind of thing that we do
1: yeah well i mean that's a good point too is that like a lot of these times you go on ghost tours and it's it's <laughs> not it's 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 legend tripping but i guess you know bringing bringing to light when this happened the texarcana case you know mm-hmm. car culture was a big thing and
2: totally right you know, exactly
1: um, so it is, like you said, it's almost a lesson, like what not to do to, you know, for kids to remain celibate and conservative. Um, so I found that very interesting. I think you put it best with this case, Josh, that it's a lack of answers on who killed the people in the town that makes the legend stronger. And, uh, yeah, it, it just yeah. sort of grew from there.
2: It, it, the lack of answers is, what a, is is like the main ingredient which you can then take that story and repurpose it for anything that you want because there is no answer. So like that's the only way an urban legend can actually form is from a story that, that has no definitive end. Yeah. Um. And so like that's the main, main ingredient. So you want to make an urban legend? first. First, get a story that typically has no right answer mm-hmm. and then apply your own – cautionary tale to it and then you know take it from there you know and you know so for Cropsey it was don't go to this abandoned mental institution because there's a pedophile there who may kill you and here it's don't have premarital sex you know uh in your in your car uh and you know we'll create you know we'll add an unsolved mystery to go to go make it seem real to you
1: the next urban legend you investigated josh is the one that hit home for me and that's The (laughs) Candyman cannot tell you how many times my parents reminded me to check my goddamn Halloween candy before I ate it. And this this came from the idea that at some point children were being poisoned or finding sharp objects in their candy, uh, which would, you know, certainly cause death. So could you tell us where your work began on this urban legend, how the uh, the idea of poisoned candy came about?
2: I mean, you said like we all have that. Uh, the, the most interesting thing about this urban legend is it's it's not even like it's an urban legend, right? You, you know, it, it's so pervasive in culture that everybody believes it to be real, and in fact, it is an urban legend. Um, it's a, you know, it's it's a, it's, a, it's a it's a panic, you know. It's what mm-hmm. they call a panic, you know. And so, uh, and there's this guy Joel Best who we interview, and he's hysterical. He writes every year. He writes the same article that it never happens but people still do it anyway so it, it's it's almost that it's gone the other way he can't convince people that it's an urban legend and so but the amazing thing about it is what's called ostension, which is enacting something and it actually happening so for example in this case and you know i guess we could give it away or we cannot but in this case there was never any true stories of anybody actually dying from tainted candy except in this one case in houston texas where this kid did die from a cyanide-laced pixie stick. And the only reason he died is because his dad poisoned him for insurance money. And what was so interesting was is when you know, they, they brought the dad in for questioning, he goes, well, you know, uh, you know, someone must have murdered him. It happens all the time. And the police are like, actually, it doesn't. It's an urban legend, and you bought into the urban legend, and you're busted. You know, <laughs> so basically, the urban legend became real ostension because some guy believed it and therefore did it. And then when people say, "Well, does, has anybody ever been killed?" It's like, "Yes, actually, somebody has now been killed by Tainted Candy," but he only believed it because it was an urban legend. Do you, you know what I'm saying? eating yeah. the tail,
1: exactly. And I mean, in that. Tragic, extremely disturbing killing. Uh, oh, he was ostensibly the man who killed Halloween. Like they he was mentioned. the man
2: who killed Halloween. Yeah, he, he was the Candyman. Yeah, they called him Candyman. And so the, the most interesting to me is what people talk about is he wasn't even the only Candyman in Houston. Mm-hmm. There, was, there was a serial killer named Dean Coral who was also the Candyman. So there's two Candymans in in Houston.
1: It just goes to show, Josh, like. That the actual crime again can be so much more horrific than the actual Mm -hmm. urban legend. Um, Right. Yeah. A
2: guy killing his own kid. I mean, how do you even talk about that? You don't. Like, you know, that's horrific. And so maybe, like, maybe people did believe in the urban legend of, by the way, that this person is called the Halloween sadist. That's the person who theoretically puts uh, pins in candy. And there's like, you know, when we did that, we did a chick, you know, chick tracks. Yeah, you know, the guy who created all those. Like, he's like one of the main main guys who talks about these Halloween sadists, like these devil worshippers who put stuff in people's candy. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's amazing, like how they regurgitate these old kind of like urban legends, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, to, to kind of use them. And that's the Halloween sadist. But, of course, the only real case where it ever happened was a very church-going man who professed to, you know, who – very church-going, by the way – who uh, killed his own kid.
1: And was not a stranger, obviously, which we'll touch on in – one of your later <laughs> urban legends uh the next one josh comes in the form of the babysitter and the man upstairs we've seen this so many times in so no many times. yeah um but it's a trope and it works it increases totally. suspense and one would think it would be easy to find actual cases of this since we've seen it so many goddamn times but it was actually pretty difficult for you to find anything and you had to go all the way back to the 1950s to actually find something on this could you tell it's us so a little good. about that
2: yeah, Columbia, Missouri. Uh, I was just, Somebody just asked me about this earlier today. Like, like it, you would think with the amount of movies that use that character, you know, the innocent quote character of, of the babysitter that there would be all these cases. But no, like there's so few cases of babysitters actually being murdered. <laughs> what there is is way more cases of babysitters murdering children. And that has its own urban legend, which is the turkey in the oven you know that one
1: yeah could you tell us briefly about that this is very disturbing
2: (laughs) (laughs) that's this is the family's going out for the first time you know their baby's born they haven't had like their first date and they go out to a movie they get a babysitter or you know they, they get a babysitter you know she's usually an old woman or like a young teenager and they're all nervous about it and they go to a movie and you know the woman has a bad feeling and she calls the babysitter just checking in the babysitter's like oh yeah everything's fine the turkey's in the oven and it's like she looks at her husband. She's like, "What turkey?" You know. And obviously, they run home and 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 the kid, the babysitter has put the child in the oven. Uh. Um, that that used to be a big LSD urban legend. That was one of the urban legends that came out of the LSD culture. Yeah. Um, where like, be careful! Don't hire hippies to take care of your children. they cook your children. But you know, it, it's very interesting. Um, Yeah, like we we found so few cases of it. And of course, it was in Columbia, Missouri. And the tragedy there is that, you know, these two white babysitters were getting killed. It was obviously the same guy. Mm -hmm. And the town, wickedly racist, was just like literally putting black guys to death, you know, rounding up the black guy, putting him to death for killing him for killing these white girls and it was obviously so much such so, so politically and and, and race charged murders it was it was hor- horrific what was really going on there
1: yeah you said it was being pinned on these black men and even though a lot of the evidence was stacked up against this one guy, um, Robert Mueller. Mueller. Um, yeah. It, it seems just so ridiculous that he was never indicted for these crimes. These discoveries were much more interesting than the urban legend itself, it would seem. And,
2: um, yeah. We couldn't believe it. You know, and then it was like, wait a second. You know, and then, you know, we were... There was always this tinge of of of, of, it was a very racially divided town, you know. We had found out, and uh, and then I don't know if you you heard last year or it was much more recently that there was a huge firing of, of. the dean of of mizzou where they had all those race issues so i was just like oh my god like we had just discussed all that you know in this urban legend and here it is coming out to play you know in in the whole culture of this uh college campus and this happened like all literally within blocks of the college campus so Uh, it's just very
1: interesting it seems like there's little I, i guess social fear of strangers actually killing the babysitters but this this small town created the fear by formulating a racial issue around it.
2: Right, that's just another thing, right? You know, the fear of the black man. Exactly. But the interesting thing was it was also, like, the the whole thing about, like, did you check the children? Did you check the children? First of all, When a Stranger Calls was the first time a film used an actual, like, urban legend from, like, almost beginning to end, Mm -hmm. you know? And so that was very interesting. But by the way, the... The the cautionary tale here is that uh, women shouldn't seek employment outside of their uh, womenly duties, raising (laughs) children. So the moment that you um, do that, you leave your home and go like get employment other place else. Look what happens. The children die. Mm -hmm. So it's really really about the subjugation. the, The urban legend itself is about the subjugation of women.
1: Yeah. Exactly. And we see that so many times in horror movies, you know, in terms of um, celibacy or purity, as it were. And it does. It touches on many gender issues. Um,
2: Which brings us back to Scream, mm -hmm. which basically, in a lot of ways, is a very irreverent, self-referential horror film that knows the tropes (laughs) of these urban legends and then talks about them, you know. Where the character talks about, you know, oh, look, it's the celibate, you know, babysitter. You know, she, she's, she's obviously not going to get killed where the slut babysitter is going to get killed. It's, it's referential. Like they know that that's happening. Um, but I think, you know, they kind of just make fun of it. But I think it's uh, the history and the cautionary tales and the lessons to be learned behind these horror stories there's so much you can learn about them you know there's so much that's being said and there's so much manipulation that's going on which I find to be the most interesting thing
1: Um, absolutely and that manipulation only continues um, in the last urban legend that you covered killer clowns (laughs) Yeah, and of course when we think of killer clowns we always go back to two major points of interest one Mm -hmm. being John Wayne Gacy obviously Mm -hmm. Um, and for me Pennywise from Stephen King's It the legend behind evil clowns stretches most much further back than these two yeah. cases. Um, can you tell us a little about your dive into the history of the, the clown archetype.
2: It's so interesting because this wasn't really like an urban legend per se. Mm-hmm. And that got some people angry. But I, I had to do it because it was just like, when did clowns become creepy? And, and when you find out is clowns actually were always creepier. They were creepy <laughs> first before they became, you know, so coated. And then they were. Then they became creepy again. And and so you know, look, a, a lot of people say clowns became creepy when John Wayne Gacy his dastardly deeds were brought to light. What was interesting to me, however, was you know that that's low hanging fruit. What's interesting to me is the Phantom Clown scares of the nineteen eighties. Yeah, which was all over the world. You know, from from Pittsburgh. To uh, Glasgow. uh, So that this phantom clown scares were happening all over the world. Kids in different communities were seeing white vans with clowns, and they were uh, snatching children. Mm -hmm. It was a pedophile scare. It was a lot of other things but what was so interesting and, and that's why chicago was just the epicenter because there was so much going on in chicago related to clowns it was the home of john wayne gacy you know there was a you know some of the batman stuff going on there as well mm-hmm. but the most interesting thing about phantom clown scares to me this was pre internet yeah. you have african american ghetto communities you have hasidic communities you have white black rich poor all these different kids in all these different communities seeing these same evil characters in their community. Yet how is this, it's not like the kids in Glasgow and the ghettos of, of Chicago are talking to each other in the pre internet age. How is this happening? This is happening before poltergeist before Stephen King's it, Mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? And so to me, there is some undercurrent Th- this is where i like i start to get the chills because to me that there that's when you're really seeing like a massive game of hysteria and panic going on pre-internet and and that's what's interesting to me and to know that pennywise came out of that
1: yeah i mean again it could be the parasitic nature of hollywood but that only feeds the uh the idea of the legend and permeates it and like you said like how were these phantom clones supposedly being sighted all over the world at, at the same time, you know. And
2: all these different communities of people who don't talk to each other. Hasidic kids were not talking in Chicago were not talking to inner city yeah. uh, you know, kids from the ghetto. It just wasn't happening, you know, but they were all seeing it, you know, and it's just so strange and bizarre and and then when we started to do our research and we found out at the same time that you know there was Gacy, of course, and there was all this stuff. We found out in Chicago that there was this train wreck, where uh, a whole bunch of clowns had burned to death in a in a massive train fire. We're yeah. like, oh, well, that, you know, and there's a <laughs> and there's a cemetery dedicated to it. We're like, okay, well, that, that's you know. Then it's Stephen King. You know yeah. what I love about Stephen King is he takes the modern day. There's the mo- There's the there's the monster that's happening now. Right Like the shining or the pet cemetery, and then there 's always some historical element to it, typically Indian American Indian, he likes to go for, on the native side you know that 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 allows it to to kind of set itself in history a lot further back that makes that really like it 's almost like the glue that sets the har the narrative you know mm. for you
1: have the idea of the mischievous clown blending into modern day where children were said to be abducted. Um, and like you said, you, you focused a lot on the area in Chicago. And I, I do want to bring up Gacy just briefly. Sure. If we could, Josh. Um, sort of the misconception of Gacy. It was right. that he was a murderous clown. But, I mean, you say in the film, or excuse me, in the, the pilot. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Uh, that this isn't the case. I mean, the clown aspect of his life was in some ways completely disconnected from the murderer. Um, Can you tell us a little about that and like what the clown side of Gacy might represent?
2: It's very interesting, right? Because all the films now show like if you're going to do like a Gacy film or like 10 years ago, they're always like Gacy dressed in a clown outfit holding a knife, you know? And that's not really what it was. You know, he was a guy who wore a lot of different masks. You know what what I (laughs) like when we're making the film, this is what's great about going making these movies like. We didn't just go to Gacy's house, we didn't just do that. We went to the park where Gacy would dress up as a police officer <laughs> and arrest, you know, kids who were uh, you know, prostituting themselves for chicken hawks, mm-hmm. you know? So like, as much as he was a clown, he was also a cop with a with a pair of handcuffs that would go around busting kids you know, who are trying to, you know, prostitute themselves. So we don't talk about that side of the Gacy mask, but we should because he used that as well. Right. But it's just about the idea that, you know, we, we have a lot of internal masks that we wear. And, and that's what I love about Bill Ellis, because then he takes it and brings it to the present day, which is the idea of chaos and the clown. It, the clown is the jester. The clown is the yin to our yang. He is the chaos character that exists in all of us. The, the character I think that uh, Heath Ledger encapsulates so much, or you know, Chris Nolan does in uh, Batman, and a lot of the things that he says, you know, "I'm I'm chaos," really ring true when you get into the archetypes of the evil clown character, and then when you have. James Holmes you know in the Aurora shootings kind of enacting that chaos you really start to see the chickens coming home to roost and you really start to see how people buy into the archetype and you know he wanted to enact the same chaos that was being talked about in that film, you know, and, um, the clown is always there,
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know, it's, it's sometimes mental illness brings the clown up a lot more, you know what I'm saying? You, 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 don't have the it or the ego or whatever, whatever it is to kind of, to kind of keep the devil on your shoulder, but, um, he's there all the time. He exists.
1: We struggle with those masks at a constant rate, especially in a digital age where we're represented you know, in avatar form on all these social networks. Totally. Is, you know what I mean? I mean, we we have these
2: filtered versions. No, 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 you absolutely correct. It el- of, our, mm-hmm. of our
1: own lives. Yeah, please elaborate.
2: No, I mean, you're absolutely correct. We, we're way more into cosplay than we've ever been. You know, we, we allow ourselves the freedom to put on those masks more than we ever have. It's mm-hmm. accepted. Ready Player One, you know, whatever it is, these (laughs) avatars that we have. And so it's a lot easier to slip into worlds and do things that we we wouldn't do. I mean, there's a reason why, you know, Eyes Wide Shut, you know, they have all those sexual escapades wearing masks. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Once you put on the mask, you can be a lot more. Dude, this goes back to superhero culture. Mm-hmm. This goes back to erotica. This goes back to all the old, all these things. You know, if you could put on the mask, you can be that other person a lot easier.
1: It's 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 absolutely captivating, Josh. And um, in terms of like what we do, we cover some pretty fringe topics. Um, mm-hmm. I deal a lot with people who claim to have encountered possible non-human entities i mean let's be honest aliens every story seems to have the same (laughs) prototypical timeline Mm -hmm. of events you know and i constantly find myself miffed about if this all stems from a cultural narrative or if it actually happened or if it's both i don't pretend to have any answers Uh, i mean no place to do that but do you think people like to adopt these sort of stories these prototypes as something of their own um like, is it a pride thing? Do they want to be noticed? Like, what do you, what do you think's going on there in terms of possibly the paranormal? Um, but if we don't want to go that far, like
2: we can. I mean, you know, like, look, I don't consider myself like a MythBuster per se, yeah. but but you know, at, at ego. Yeah, absolutely. Like I was the one to see the ghost. The ghost ho- showed himself to me. Right. You know, is that there? Absolutely. You know, and that 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 also plays in kind of a Salem witch trial itself. You know, how much was the Salem witch trials like Heather's? How much was it a popularity contest? I saw the devil. You know, <laughs> um, but then you know, I did a movie as a producer called Mysterious Skin, and and one of the things in Mysterious Skin is his character Brady Corbet. He was molested by his baseball coach, but, you know, he thinks he was abducted by aliens. Hmm. And so, you know, there's a one reason why so many of the alien abduction stories have a sexual uh, penetration thing going on as well. Again, we create stories to deal with events that we can't understand or don't want to understand because they make no sense.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Why would a baseball coach some guy i trust molest me so instead i was abducted by aliens because we don't know the motives of an alien that's just how it happens it happens for so many reasons one of the urban legends actually that we do plan on trying to do another round of, of, of killer legends by the way
1: uh, that was yeah, going to yeah. be my next question.
2: <laughs> <laughs> do plan on doing that? We've been going back and pitching that, you know, to to do it on a better channel and to find you know the right place, whether that's Netflix. <laughs> and uh, so, guys, if you're out there and you want more, please let us know. And and one of the ones we want to talk about is the is the Betty and Barney Hill. Oh, awesome! You know, yeah. because listen, there's a lot of people who have a lot of different reasons why they might say that they were abducted by aliens, right? And and you know, there's some people who. Have you seen, by the way, Mirage Men?
1: Absolutely, uh, great movie, Mark right? Mark Twinkleton, yeah. Uh, one of my, I just watched it the other day. It's funny you mentioned that. So good, amazing, yeah. So and good, creating a myth around so many years of storytelling and
2: creating a myth out of disinformation yeah. and enough to feed more disinformation. It's brilliant, you it know is. what I'm saying? Like that. So that is like. Who knows why some of these things happen? Like, who knows why people? There's so many different reasons to feed the mythology yep. that it's so hard to, uh, you know, get an answer for all of them. Like, you know, maybe Whitley Strieber was abducted. You know, maybe you know maybe something did happen, or, or or but maybe you know something else happened. But you know what I love about Betty and Barney Hill was these were two extremely upstanding individuals. Mm-hmm. You know, they would have no reason to lie. You know what I'm saying?
1: You know, especially as an interracial couple
2: at the time, so much. <laughs> totally. like, dude, The last thing you want to do is draw attention to yourselves. However, but let's really get into it. Really, yeah. what was, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. do you have any ideas? Uh,
1: it's, you know, it's such a, it's such a pivotal case in terms of, quote unquote, the UFO field. And there's been so much contention with it. Um, in terms of my personal beliefs, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. And I'm not afraid to say that. I Firmly believe something happened to them. Um, a lot of people think it may have been the military. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, right there, if the military was somehow involved in this "quote unquote" abduction, if the hills are going out and saying it was aliens, done. Your disinformation has been planted immediately.
2: Yeah, I have to say, mirage men really opened my eyes to to how these can how journalists could be manipulated into, you know, retelling and regurgitating those stories over and over again.
1: And I know a lot of our more <sighs> believers will hate yeah, hate us promoting this film, Mirage Man, but what? it is. It's absolutely eye-opening.
0: Stai,
2: you have a guy who works for the CIA saying that that is what we did.
1: Yeah, yeah exactly yeah. richard doty you know and for all his uh
2: you know that he says we really spread misinformation because we didn't want people to know about things like stealth bombers right so if somebody said something we told them it was an alien ship right that's, that's what you do so the other part of an urban legend is that you can never prove or disprove it right yep. because yes. if you could then the urban legend has no power and so the 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 inability to, to you know the 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 fact that you can't do it is what makes it work and and the same thing with with you know aliens once you throw in the disinformation there's always an answer you know what i'm saying and nev- and there's never a right answer
1: and that seed was sort of planted early on with the first case of roswell in 1947 which started immediately with possibly a lie but we don't know and it just it goes from there so you, you mentioned Josh, that you you wanted to do more of killer legends. Um, what would you want to cover um, if you had the opportunity
2: oh there's so many great ones uh, when, when to go psychosis? you know the idea of like eating people somehow makes you crazy uh, which which is true. you know what i 'm saying uh, everything mole people love that you know we were just talking about it this morning literally literally, we were just talking to a, um, a company this morning about it you know mole people, um, Betty and Barney Hill. Vampire cults, you know, like uh, all all those very interesting things. We're doing a a show. We're doing a show actually for uh, for Amy about serial killers. Oh, okay. And kind of dispelling some of the mythology about that. And you know, a lot of people think that vampires were just werewolves were just serial killers. They were just serial killers that, that that were killing people, and people didn't know how to contextualize that, so they kind of created you know the vampire mythology. Yeah, it makes complete sense. You yeah. Know?
1: Um, and I know you're working on another documentary as well, is that correct?
2: Yeah, yeah. One about an a different kind of urban legend, a whale. A whale, okay. <laughs> yeah, that is that's that's my lovable can't can't do too much darkness, but uh actually been working on it for about four years, a documentary about a whale that calls out at a frequency that theoretically no other whale can understand. And he's been swimming through the oceans kind of for um you know, a couple decades now. And uh, it's this kind of Ahabian quest to find this whale and just why we believe, why we have all these uh, emotions tied to whales. Everybody loves whales, but why?
1: Especially one that can't communicate with anything else on the planet.
2: Of course, it's man's existential crisis. Wow. You know, it's, just, it's the best thing. And so, like, just to watch people like freak out when they hear this story, they're like, Oh my god, it's so sad.
1: Oh wow, yeah. That's where the empathy comes in for sure.
2: Totally. totally.
1: <laughs> so Josh, where can we find out more about what you're up to and where to find Cropsy, Killer Legends, and how we can get this thing back on the air?
2: <laughs> sure. Well, you know, the the interesting thing is that uh Cropsy you can see it Netflix you know, it's pretty much everywhere digitally and uh you could also, um, if you just search for it, a lot of people don't know that there's a ton of great extra footage on Cropsey, mm-hmm. uh, on the DVDs that you can uh, VHX, you can a company called VHX, you can find it. But you know, if you do some searching, you can find how to get all that additional content. Same thing with Killer Legends, iTunes, Hulu, Netflix, and then um, you know some of our other stuff is going to be coming out. Twitter, Josh Zeman, you know i 'm around it 's interesting i don 't use that much social media mm-hmm. as, as you might think, but that 's because uh, i 'm always working
1: yeah right, that 's a good thing man, <laughs> for sure. I wish okay. more people would take after you i um, rather
2: 'd rather make content than make posts yeah but, you know
1: good point well, I mean, and you have, and you 've tapped into sides of humanity that most of us just aren't willing to face and that is the cold hard truth that we we are like you say the monsters we create and inevitably the legends we fear and it takes someone like yourself to shine a light in those dark corners of society and to try to find some sort of answers and perhaps even give some closure to the people that you've interviewed and documented on these actual cases so Mm -hmm. i want to thank you for not only coming on the show today but for doing that for people so yeah totally dig your work man i look forward to what you have coming up next and again thank you so much for coming on today
2: Uh, thanks for having me
1: That's it for this week's episode. Be sure to check out Cropsey and Killer Legends, available on Hulu, Netflix, Shudder, and many other streaming platforms. Please take a few moments to subscribe, rate, and review Somewhere in the Skies on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. These are the largest podcast platforms out there, and every subscription and rating moves us closer to being featured and helps us gain new listeners. Thank you in advance. If you'd like to support the show and receive many rewards in return, please consider becoming a Patreon subscriber today. To learn more and to contribute monthly, visit patreoncom skies. We're on Twitter at Somewhere Skies and Instagram at Somewhere Skies Pod. For past episodes, news, articles, and contact information, visit the official website, SomewhereInTheSkies.com. Thank you so much for sticking with us through October for this very special Halloween series. We are back in ufological fashion next week as we count down to Con. We've got some very special guests coming your way throughout November, so stay tuned for that. Have a very happy Halloween. And remember, keep your eyes to the skies, but never stop searching somewhere on the ground.
0: Somewhere in the Skies is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One Podcast Network. To learn more, visit entertainmentonepodcast.com.
1: It's human nature to be fascinated by mystery, drawn to the unknown, desperately seeking answers for something that is
0: impossible to understand or explain.
1: Well, that's our specialty. I'm Paula Schleiss.
2: And I'm Steve Yoder, and we're the hosts of Ohio
1: Mysteries. We've got a head-scratcher for you. Join us the evening of October 28th for a very, very special podcast we're calling The Great UFO Chase. Because if you're a skeptic, this just might be the story that makes a believer out of you. After all, who can argue with eyewitness accounts and even a photo from trained law enforcement officials in two states? Um, Project Blue Book, that's who. Oh yeah, those guys. Well... Give us a listen and decide for yourself. Search for Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app. Or visit us at ohiomysteries.com.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping.